want to invite you to turn with me to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. It was October of last year when a NASCAR driver named Brandon Brown had just won the Sparks 300 at Talladega, and he was being interviewed by an NBC reporter after that race, and the crowd in the background was chanting something uh, vulgar directed at President Joe Biden. And the reporter suggested that the crowd was chanting, let's go, Brandon. And that's how let's go, Brandon became a euphemistic expression of disapproval, you could say, criticism toward President Biden. And that slogan went viral, and it didn't take long to be commercialized, plastered all over stickers and signs and flags and shirts and anything else you can sell. The question I want to raise is, What should Christians think about things like that? What does God say about how we relate, how we speak, how we act toward government officials, including those with whom we disagree? One of the most challenging and contentious issues for Christians down through church history has been the relationship between the church and the government, the church and state. Few topics are so emotionally charged, the stakes are high, various positions people take are polarizing. So when it comes to our relationship to the government, more than anything else, we just need a word from God. We need God to speak to us and address us, and that's what he has done on this topic in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our regard for God and his word, reverence that we pay to God because he speaks to us. This is the very word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Just that alone is an incredible expression of your great kindness toward us that you reveal to us supernaturally light, insight, revelation that we need to think and live in this world in a way that pleases you. And so we ask for your help in understanding and applying this text this morning that you might be glorified in our lives in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. So, Romans 13, 1 through 7, is a hotly debated text of Scripture. It's commonly, I think, misunderstood. I think it's frequently misapplied, even though the main point is not really difficult to identify or understand. It's found right there in the command. It's repeated twice, verses 1 and 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's Paul's point. He says it again in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the idea is simple enough. God calls his people to submit to the civil government, to obey the law, to honor rulers. And he calls them to submit to the government because it's God himself who has authorized governing authorities to punish evildoers. That's the entire logic of this text. And that's fairly straightforward. The challenge comes when we try to apply that to our lives, lives of Christians living at different times in history under different rulers, kings, emperors, tyrants, different forms of government, democracies and monarchies and communism. And Christians have found themselves in all kinds of different situations. And so then all of the yeah, buts, and what abouts start to come out? What about the despots and the tyrants? What about the godless and wicked rulers? Does Romans 13 really require us to submit to any and all authority? And I think it's wise before we jump into those applications and what about these exceptions. It, it, we have to start with the original context. Paul wrote this letter to Christians in Rome living under Emperor Nero, that's, that's a big deal. He, he was not a Christian, he was a pagan. He wrote this during what was called uh, the golden years of Nero's reign, a five-year period when things were pretty good in Rome. But shortly after that, Nero would murder his mother and go off the rails in all kinds of ways. But Paul wrote this to Christians only a few years before the great Jewish revolt broke out. Just a few verses back in Romans 12, 19, Paul quoted Deuteronomy chapter 32. These words, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And those words were originally spoken by God through Moses to the people of Israel, warning Israel that God would not let them rebel against him forever. He would one day put an end to their idolatry and their sin and their rebellion. And Moses foretold that God was going to use foreigners in doing that bringing his judgment on Jerusalem. And, and that instrument of God's judgment on Jerusalem turned out to be the Roman Empire. God's judgment on the generation that had executed the Son of God. Jesus taught that the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed within a single generation of his disciples. Matthew 24, 34. So Paul's writing this like 25, 30 years after Jesus prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. And he wrote this letter to believers in Rome sometime around 55, 58 AD. It was just less than 10 years after that that this, it's called in history, the Great Jewish Revolt broke out. Jews in Judea rebelling against Rome. And that bloody rebellion lasted years before it was finally crushed by the Romans and resulted in the, the desecration and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had foretold. So, so all that's going on, or about to go on, at the time Paul wrote that. I think that's important background. When, when God begins to use evil rulers and 
pagan empires to work out his judgment in the world. It's, it's easy for Christians to kind of get caught up in movements that are ungodly also. And Paul is warning the Christians in Rome not to get caught up in that Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire. I don't think Romans 13 calls for absolute, unqualified obedience to anyone who claims to possess some government position. That's not the command in the text. Just consider Paul's own life. The very same Paul who penned Romans 13, 1 through 7, listen to his account in 2 Corinthians 11 of one event in his life. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So apparently, Paul did not think submit yourself to the governing authorities meant that he had to turn himself in at this particular roadblock. He was just fine evading that. So these things call for godly wisdom and discernment. And the question is, what does Romans 13 mean for us today? Remember the banner over this whole section. I think Greg has so helpfully pointed us back as we've been working our way. Beginning in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that, that's the heading over everything Paul is saying now in this section of Romans. So look back again one more time at Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your physical bodies. This is spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And be transformed in particular by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The, the Christian life is not escapist. We're not trying to achieve some disembodied nirvana where we, if we could just get out of this material world, that would be so much better. No, we, we live in physical bodies by God's design. We are embodied souls. We live in houses built out of two-by-fours and sheetrock on cement foundations, and we live in communities. We live in cities and states and nations underneath the authority of mayors and city councils and governors and legislatures and judiciaries, and, and all of this in a fallen world, where our governing officials are often non-Christians. So as people who profess Jesus as Lord, how are we to relate to secular civil government? Here's what this text claims for us. Because God governs all human government... That is the foundational reality revealed here. God governs all human government. And because he does, it follows from that, that your respectful obedience to human government is actually an act of worship to God. Because God governs all human government, your respectful obedience to human government is an act of worship to God. And this word from God here in Romans 13, it reveals timeless truth for all Christians living anywhere in history, anywhere around the world, under any government, and it's meant to transform our relationship to government by renewing our thinking about God's relationship to government. That, that's how this text gets stuff done in, a, in us. It affects our relationship to government by changing how we think about God's relationship to government. There's truth about God revealed here. So to that end, we're going to look at what this text reveals about the absolute sovereignty of God the limited authority of government, and the respectful disposition of the Christian. God 
government, and you, the Christian. Let's begin with God's absolute sovereignty. As with any subject, right thinking about the government begins and ends with thinking rightly about God. That's where everything starts. God is the main character in Romans 13, the main actor. God is explicitly mentioned six times in this passage. He is implied in several other places. In verse 1, Paul says, For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. In verse 2, he draws out the implication, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. This is about God. Paul's claim is, it's, it's simple, it's not difficult to understand, but it is sweeping. It is a massive claim. God is sovereign over every human authority. He reigns supreme over and above every king, every president, every prime minister or sultan or czar or whatever they call themselves. God is over them. He's over all parliaments and all legislatures and all councils. He is over all prosecutors and judges and clerks and sheriffs and police chiefs and law enforcement officers. He is over and above all earthly powers. You name any civil magistrate, any government official, local, national, it doesn't matter. Scripture's answer is the same. There is no authority except from God. That's powerful. That's the truth that we're supposed to believe and trust and rely on, cling to in this text. The thing about absolute sovereignty is there are no exceptions to it. There can't be or it wouldn't be sovereignty. God is not sovereign sometimes. God is not sovereign only when the right people are in power and not when the wrong people are. He's sovereign all the time over all rulers and governments. This does not mean that God morally approves of whatever those in power happen to be doing at any given time, but it does mean that no one wields any power apart from God's permission. That's the consistent testimony of all Scripture, Daniel 2, 21. He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. Period. Job 12, 23, he, God, makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges them and leads them away. Do you see a nation ascending in power? God is doing something. Do you see a nation in decline? God is doing something. That's always true. Daniel 4, 17, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 1 Timothy 6, 15 calls God the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Whatever title men apply to themselves, God takes that and says, I'm that over all of you. And as the only sovereign, God is the one then who, according to Romans 13, instituted government. In common sense, Thomas Paine wrote, government even in its best state is but a necessary evil. That's not the view of scripture. Romans 13, 1, those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Paul says in verse 4, they are there for your good. God knows what he's doing, and he's at work for your good all the time. 
instituted translates a word that means to establish order, to arrange things in their place. God is not a God of chaos, but order. And he brings order into this world through the institution of civil government. That's one of God's means of working in the world. And the home, the church, and the state are all institutions that we see established by God in Scripture. God instituted civil government. We have to go back to Genesis 9. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's where human government begins. As bad as you may think that things look today, trust me, they were much, much worse in Noah's days. Genesis 6.11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So much violence that there was, as one author calls, a near extinction of God's people. Near extinction of God's people. Noah was the only righteous man left on earth. Just imagine that. So God sent a flood and he wiped out the wicked. But the flood didn't remove sin from human hearts. So when Noah comes off the ark with his family, what protection would there be for peaceful, righteous, law-abiding, God-fearing men and women? They had been almost wiped out entirely under the wickedness of human sin before the flood. Is that going to just keep on happening? down to one person, one sole survivor left? The answer is found in Genesis 9, where God institutes human government to protect the righteous and punish the wicked. Listen to Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, God says to Noah, I will require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And with those words, God authorized human beings to defend themselves against the wicked and the violent, gave them some recourse. Human authority authorized by God to punish the wicked and restrain evils. So much more could be said about legitimate government and due process and how all of that gets played out. And God does say a lot more about it in his word and in the Mosaic law, but that's, that's beyond our scope this morning. My point here is just to give you the backstory. When Paul says God instituted human governments, that's the teaching of, of Scripture. God established human authorities to protect the righteous and to punish the wicked. And, and so Romans 13 affirms God is the king of the world. He's not absent. He's not on vacation. He's active in history. Romans 12, 19, we, we heard this last week when Paul is dealing with our inclination to take revenge on others and get even. And Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Greg pointed out to us, we must not think that means only that God is going to wait until the end of human history to do anything about evil in the world. What Paul teaches right here in Romans 13 is that God carries out his vengeance, his wrath, in history through civil government. So, so that means God's acting in the world, and he's acting in the world for your good. Verse 4, Paul says about those in authority, he is God's servant for your good. Then he says, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God works through human authorities to, to bless law-abiding people, to punish evildoers. There will be ultimate cosmic justice on the last day. Praise God. And God is not waiting until then. If you're bothered by injustice and violence and oppression in the world as, as you ought to be, I, Read and pray the lament in Psalm 10, the powerful lament where, where the psalmist observes the arrogance of the wicked who think, 
God doesn't see us. God is not going to do anything to stop us. We can get away with whatever we want. And the psalmist cries out to God, act, act in history. Call them to account now. Break the arm of the wicked so that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. It's right for us to long for that, to live in a society where God's wrath against thieves and rapists and murderers is brought to justice quickly is a great blessing. Jesus taught us to pray, Father, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we thank God that he manifests his justice on earth through civil authorities. That's where understanding and applying Romans 13 begins, trusting that God is absolutely sovereign over all human authorities. And that brings us to second observation, the limited authority of human government. This passage speaks of, this is the subject of the text, verse 1, the governing authorities, verse 2, the authorities, verse 3, the one who is in authority. The word here refers to human government officials. Verse 3, Paul speaks of rulers, somebody who has administrative authority in society, civil officers. So, so what does Romans 13 say about human government? I think one thing it reveals is that the flip side of that first point, all government derives authority from God. If God is sovereign over governments, he institutes them, he appoints them, then all legitimate governments possess limited authority from God. It's delegated. That, that means all governing authorities are accountable to God. Verse 4, he is God's servant. He is the servant of God. The, the word is diakonos, where we get our word deacon. A deacon of God. Verse 6, the authorities are ministers of God. It's a civil ministry appointed by God. Both of those words imply service or assistance. This is not just about grabbing more and more power to serve one's own ends. It's underneath God's purposes. There is accountability here. Some Christians who are quick to point to Romans 13 as an endorsement of all government, just do whatever the government says, then turn around and act like God then has nothing to say about how those governments should rule, what kind of laws they should enact and enforce. But Paul clearly says, look at verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do what is good and you will receive his approval. He says in verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Those words there, bad, wrong, wrongdoer, all translate the same Greek word, translated as evil several times back in Romans 12. So Paul's thinking in categories of good and bad, right and wrong, justice and injustice. It's not like God just says to government officials, all right, you are my authorized agents, now you make up, according to your mind, what you think is best for society. You decide what's good and evil. Make up your own laws. No, God is the God of all righteousness. By what standard is human conduct measured? By what standard do we determine what's good and bad, right and wrong? We're not left to our own imaginations. This talk echoes all the way back to Romans 12, verse 2, and it runs down through chapter 12 into chapter 13. Do not be conformed to this world, chapter 12, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good is that which pleases God. Evil is that which displeases God. God is the standard. God's will is the standard. God's word is the rule. So Romans 13 sets clear limits for human governments. And you can be sure God will hold all in authority accountable 
to his law. Just take great comfort in this. Of all the tyrants in human history, none of them have been in power forever. After God wielded them for his own purposes, then he took them down. He always does. He sets limits on all government. You don't have to fear, oh no, it's going to be like this forever. No, it won't. God is God. And he will hold them accountable. God established civil government for your good as defined by his word. So, so no government can just claim authorization from God and then wield its power to do evil. Not how this works. According to Romans 13, the primary task of the government is to restrain evil. Look again at verses 3 through 5. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So government officials, as appointed by God, are not supposed to be limp-wristed, milk-toast bureaucrats. That's not. There should be something a little bit terrifying about them. In a just society, rulers are supposed to be a terror to evil people. Evildoers are supposed to have a hard time sleeping at night. They should live in great fear of being caught, and they should know it's going to happen, and when it happens, justice is going to be executed quickly. That's the kind of world we want to live in. And so to carry out that task, God has assigned the sword to the civil government. And the sword, all the ways people try to interpret this text, it just everywhere in the New Testament refers to violent death. Nobody's just getting, you know, whacked on the knuckles with a sword. Like Genesis 9, the reference to loss of life as the ultimate punishment, you go to the end and say, if, if government's authorized with that punishment, then they're also authorized to enforce many other lesser punishments all the way back up. Restraining evil in society by justly punishing the wicked is government's primary responsibility. That's it. Not housing and healthcare, not education and welfare, just restrain evil. God gave those other responsibilities to the home and to the church. To the state, God gave the sword, which is a big deal, to carry out God's wrath on lawbreakers. And all of that is for your good. Think how much God loves you. What a blessing it is to live in society where evil is restrained. Imagine if people were as wicked as they could be. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that even people who don't want to obey the laws, do obey some laws because they're a little bit afraid of getting caught. What a blessing, isn't that? A kindness of God to us. So where does that leave us? It brings us to the respectful disposition of the Christian. Romans 13 reveals these truths about God and government, but it's addressed to Christians about us, about our hearts and our attitudes. The reality of God's sovereign rule over human governments is meant to affect us. It's meant to engender in you a, a respectful submission to the government. Verse 1 begins, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 5 concludes, therefore, one must be in subjection. What's interesting to me is that throughout this section, Paul uses the, the first, or the, excuse me, the, the second person singular, like you personally. Like he's pointing to people saying you, and you, and you, and you. Let each one, not just you all, but each of you individually, meaning willing obedience to the government is the normal disposition 
of every Christian toward the government. Not fierce individualism, not unbridled autonomy. I think that can be a challenge to a lot of our American culture, our, our mindset. No one tells me what to do. May be an American attitude, it may be very cowboy, but it's not Christian. Christians want to submit to just authorities because God has instituted them. Christians earnestly pray for those in authority, that they would fear God and govern justly for our good. Christians are grieved when the government requires things that God forbids or prohibits things that God requires of us. Christians are never, ever rebels or anarchists or rioters or insurrectionists, ever. And it's important before you wade into deeper waters like is it ever permissible to resist tyrants? And how can we go about engaging in civil disobedience? You really must be mastered by this first. A disposition of respectful obedience to God rendered in honor and obedience to the government. This is what I teach my children about obedience. First, you obey, and then you may ask questions. Then you can make an appeal. Then you can ask why. But the first response of your heart is to be humble obedience. Because if and when Christians find it necessary to disobey human authority, even that is done as an act of trusting obedience to God. Which means the only thing God ever calls you to do is obey. If you have to disobey a lesser authority, you're doing it as an act of obedience to a higher authority. So it's obedience. It's not really disobedience, it's obedience. All of the Christian life is trusting obedience to God. Submitting to the government is the logical conclusion that flows from this reality. God institutes government. Paul gives the same two supporting reasons two different times in this text. Verse 2, verse 5. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists, this is the first reason, you are resisting what God has appointed. And second reason, those who resist will incur judgment. You're resisting what God has appointed, you, you will incur judgment. Verse 5, same two reasons. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, that's one reason, but also for the sake of conscience. So, one reason to obey is just to avoid punishment, right? We would consider that maybe the, the lesser reason. That's certainly not the highest reason Christians have for obedience. You know how that goes, like you're driving along the interstate and then you see the, the speed trap and so you tap on the brakes to avoid the ticket, right? And as soon as you think you're safely out of range of the radar, just everybody's accelerating again, right? That's, that's one motivation, just avoid the penalty. Paul says there's another reason, a higher reason, obedience as obedience rendered to God. That's the motivation. That means it doesn't matter if there's somebody watching or not. It doesn't matter if you think you could get away with it. You know you are always under God's authority. That's what it means to obey for the sake of conscience. So that means there are really only two possibilities for anybody in this world. You either live in humble submission to God or in defiant rebellion against God. No neutral ground. And those two categories of submission or rebellion, those are not invisible categories of the heart. 
Those are observable outwardly in our lives, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes. This stuff comes out. Listen to verses 6 through 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So taxes and revenue both have to do with financial obligations owed to governing authorities. And those redeemed by God's mercy know we live in this material world. We are presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And whatever we have materially is just a gift from God. And so we think differently. Do you think that way? Like filing your taxes is a spiritual act of worship to God? I can tell you when I'm thinking about taxes, that's not the first thought on my mind. But it is. It's an act of worship to God. Do you think of obeying traffic laws as a way to display honor and obedience to God, not just to grumble about who lowered it to 25. Respect and honor in this text both speak of a disposition of the heart that is outwardly observable, manifested in external displays of reverence. God calls you to honor and respect government officials, including those with whom you disagree. The military has a a, a highly visible culture of honor and respect. Right? Soldiers stand at attention, and they salute. That's instructive for us because it's possible that you might not like the officer above you personally, and yet you could still stand at attention respectfully and salute him and show him honor. You might salute the rank and not necessarily the man. That is to be our attitude toward government offices. People who are always flouting the laws, bending the rules to suit themselves, mocking people in authority, those are just outwardly observable evidences of rebellion against God. Listen, if you only submit to somebody in authority over you when you agree with them, then you've never submitted to anyone else ever. You've only ever done what you wanted to do anyway. But as you are transformed by God's grace, then your life is marked by discernible honor and obedience to those God has placed over you. And even even when Christians are mistreated and persecuted, they refuse to revile or speak evil of those in authority. There's a powerful example of this from the 16th century. In a, a letter written to King Philip II of Spain, like 450 years ago, by a Reformed pastor named Guido de Bray. This is such a gripping story to me. Guido de Bray is the one who authored the Belgic Confession, which is one of the great confessions of faith of the Reformed tradition. King Philip fiercely opposed the Reformation in the Netherlands. He locked up and tortured and killed Christians by the thousands. And a common play that the enemy has run on Christians throughout church history is to accuse Christians of various crimes against society and especially of crimes against the government. Then you round them up and do whatever you want with them. So Debray wrote the Belgic Confession to say, this is what we believe and this is not a threat to your majesty. And then, along with that confession, he wrote a lengthy letter appealing to the king for some relief from the persecution and delivered it. Couldn't get a hearing with the king. They had to throw the letter and the confession over the wall and hope that it would be read. Listen to this excerpt from Debray's letter. And notice how it is informed by Romans 13. This is a Christian living under a tyrant. And Debray would be eventually captured and hung for his faith. 
pushed off the platform by the executioner while he's in the middle of just proclaiming the gospel to everybody there watching. Listen to his words. We are, they say, disobedient insurrectionists, desiring nothing other than to destroy all political and civil rule and to introduce into the world confusion and disorder. Oh, the crimes alleged which are unworthy of our confession, unworthy of a Christian man. We protest and testify now before God and his angels that we desire nothing higher than to live according to the purity of our consciences in obedience under the authorities, to serve God and to reform ourselves according to his word and holy commandments. In our communal assemblies, we pray for the kings and princes of the earth, and in particular for you, listen to his language, for you, O most gracious Lord. That's how he addressed the king who was persecuting himself and his brothers and sisters in the faith. We pray for you, O most gracious Lord. He honors the king, and for those whom you have authorized in the regime and ruling offices of the regions and countries of your domain. For we have been taught not only by God's word, but also through the constant instruction of our preachers that the kings, princes, and authorities are appointed by the ordinance of God. Besides, we have been taught that he that resists the magistrates resists the ordinance of God and will receive damnation. He's just quoting Romans 13. We acknowledge and maintain that by the eternal wisdom of God, the kings rule and the princes determine justice. And yet, the Christians in the Netherlands were resolved to obey God above man if necessary. But they would only do that in humble, respectful submission. Because it's an act of obedience, not defiance. Listen to their words. However... Since we had the fear of God before our eyes and thus dreading the threat of Jesus Christ who says that he will deny us before God his Father should we deny him before men, we offer our backs to the whips, our tongues to the knives, the mouth to the muzzle, and the whole body to the flames. For we have not the right, nor may we refuse to obey him because he hath made us and purchased us for himself through the payment of the most dear price of infinite worth. Do you know what that price is? Do you know how Jesus purchased you for himself? He was condemned to death unjustly under human authorities. Do you remember his words when he stood on trial before Pontius Pilate who had sentenced him to be crucified? John 19, 11, Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What an attitude. What a moment to bring in that truth. Even now, unjustly condemned, falsely accused, the righteous Son of God put to death, and he could say to Pilate, the only authority you have to execute me comes to you from my Father. Not only does God speak to us about our actions and our words toward government officials, he lived it out for us in his life, and his death. What a savior. Peter says it like this. We heard it in the scripture reading earlier. 1 Peter 2. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the highest authority, to him who judges justly. 
And he did that. He did that to bear your sins in his body on the tree so that you and I might die to sin and live to righteousness by those wounds. You and I are healed. What grace. May the God of mercy get glory for himself through our lives in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being gracious to us in Christ who bore our sins in his body on the tree. May we live to righteousness. May you be exalted. And we do pray, Father, like those brave Christians who have gone before us in past generations, we we too pray for those in authority over us now. We pray for our nation, God, that you would pour out a spirit of repentance on our land that people's hearts would be quickened, that their consciences would be convicted, that they would turn in desperation to you. Oh God, we know that as a nation we deserve your judgment and we pray for your mercy. We pray for your mercy and we trust you. Father, we trust you in these days. We trust you, come what may, your authority over all. Seal that conviction in our hearts so securely that no matter what happens, we would be faithful to you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.